it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, August 2nd, 2022. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you very much for tuning in. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, that's when we air. If you can't catch it live, which we recommend that you try to at least, we understand. There's a podcast. It is free. It is on demand every day after the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com. We had another, another monster month on the podcast in July. We're grateful for that. GuyBensonShow.com. All of the needs right there. Or FoxNewsPodcast.com. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can also follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram. It's the same handle, at Guy Benson Show. I'm the political editor at townhall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor. I'll be on the business network in the 6 p.m. hour today, the evening edit, so you might want to tune in for that. And, of course, I host this fine program every day on the radio side. And listen to the lineup that we have for you this afternoon. Later this hour, Dana Perino, our friend, our colleague, will be here. In the next hour, Congressman Kevin Brady, a Republican of Texas. In our final hour, Jennifer Griffin, our Fox News colleague, national security correspondent. A lot to talk about with her, including Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. She is on the ground in Taipei, and good for her. I rarely spare a positive word about Pelosi, but I think she deserves it here. What are the implications? China is hopping mad. The communists in Beijing, very angry. We'll ask Jennifer about that. Plus, the strike, the CIA drone strike, taking out the leader of al-Qaeda, al-Zawahiri. Those details coming up. Plus, in our final hour, U.S. Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa, a Republican and a veteran. So just packed today on the show. Looking forward to all of those conversations with those guests. I do want to start where we also started yesterday, I think it is very important, especially as a show based here in D.C., just steps away from the Capitol, that we keep our eye on this huge tax and spend bill that the Democrats have rolled out. And needless to say, but I will say it anyway, just to reiterate, I am dead set against this idea. This is the Schumer Mansion plan. And yes, this is hardcore politics, But sometimes we do hardcore politics on the show based out of Fox's Washington, D.C. Bureau. And Senator Manchin, for whom we have some respect and we are grateful for some of the things that he does from time to time in bucking his party. He is much more independent and moderate than almost any of them on Capitol Hill, with a D next to their name at least. He is out there spreading talking points that are just wrong. And in some cases, embarrassingly wrong about this package that he has signed onto and has blessed and kind of bears his name along with Chuck Schumer. We had Brett Bayer on the show yesterday talking about the interview he had with Manchin. That was Fox News Sunday. And Manchin is still out there 
saying things like this on Capitol Hill earlier in Cut 19. Listen. What about the fact that, you know, taxes on those uh, making uh, $200,000 or less? There's nothing on taxes at all. There's not one, one penny of change in taxes. I have no idea where they're coming at. Let me tell you the only thing that we did. The only thing that was done is basically we looked at taking everything out that could be looked to be uh, to fanning the fires of inflation or inflaming it. And there's nothing there. This is not true. That's not even close to true. The revenue side of this bill is something like $700 billion. It's not just magic money that Joe Manchin found on his West Virginia tree. That's taxpayer money based on raising taxes. They are raising taxes on businesses, predominantly, disproportionately, on manufacturers. And you can argue that it's not raising the tax rate of individuals, but it is raising the burden of living by raising taxes. It is harming and impacting lots of workers and their jobs by raising taxes on these companies, including American manufacturers. Of course, there are tax increases in the bill. And they're also doubling the size of the audit force at the IRS. And have fun with that. If you're in the crosshairs of the IRS, especially as a working class or middle class family, some family farm, a small business, that is absolutely brutal. And the IRS, that audit force is doubled under this bill, 80 billion plus sent over to the Internal Revenue Service. So Manchin can pretend and just keep stating or asserting there's no tax increases in the bill at all that simply is wrong. I don't understand why he keeps saying it. He doesn't strike me as someone – some of these politicians have no problem just aggressively and shamelessly lying constantly. It's like breathing. It's like fish in water. It's what they do. Manchin doesn't really strike me as that kind of guy, so I'm trying to figure out why he's saying this. It's just – totally divorced from reality. So he got into it a little bit with our colleague Harris Faulkner on the Faulkner Focus earlier today. Harris was pushing him on some points on taxes, for example. Here's how that sounded. Cut 25. Are you saying that Mitch McConnell and others in the Senate are wrong about those numbers and that Americans' taxes are not going to go up beyond that point? Totally, absolutely wrong. Totally wrong. And here's the thing. Right. They're looking well, at it through political lenses. Look at it through the American I'm lens. I'm just asking Look questions. At it. I'm, I'm just answering questions. Okay. I want to answer these questions because what you're asking and the facts you have are completely wrong. Okay, let me read to you from today's Wall Street Journal editorial on this. Quote, evidence is emerging that the new Schumer Mansion 15% minimum tax on corporate book income is especially harmful to U.S. manufacturing firms. An analysis by Congress's Joint Committee on Taxation, JCT, we mentioned this yesterday with Brett, which is hardly a nest of supply-siders, this is an official congressional nonpartisan scorekeeper, found that 49.7% of the tax would hit U.S. manufacturers. The journal editors write this, One well-known economic truth is that corporations don't really pay taxes. They are essentially tax collectors, as the corporate tax rate ultimately falls on some combination of workers, shareholders, and customers. Raise the corporate tax rate, and you're cutting wages and salaries for workers. 
No surprise, that's exactly what the Joint Committee on Taxation found in its analysis of the Schumer Mansion Bill's distributional impact. So we're in a moment now in inflation. I know they call this the what the Reducing Inflation Act, which is just insulting. It's called the Rainbow and Butterflies Act. Why do you hate rainbows? They call it the Inflation Reduction Act, whatever the term is for this. Right now, people are seeing their real wages go down. Nominal wages are up, but it's swamped by inflation, so their wages in reality, their purchasing power going down – and this is a corporate tax increase. I know Manchin's saying there's no tax component at all. It's just wrong. Of course there is. By raising taxes on corporations, that is an effective wage cut for workers and an increase in the cost of goods to consumers. That's the way that these costs get passed down. That is just economic reality. Do either of those sound good to you, especially right now? Do we need workers' wages going down further? Do we need costs of goods and services going up for consumers? That's what will happen. And the nonpartisan JCT, back to the Wall Street Journal piece, quote, finds that average tax rates will increase for nearly every income category in 2023 under the bill. Taxes will rise by nearly $17 billion in 2023, just next year alone, on Americans earning less than $200,000 a year. Now, it's not their personal income tax bracket or rate that's changing, but it is a tax increase that is affecting these people. The JCT ran all of the numbers, did their analysis, and found this is going to hit to the tune of $17 billion, millions of Americans who are making less than two hundred grand. Remember the cutoff from Biden, the promise that he has blown multiple times. It was never a real promise was $400,000. But that is not a promise that will be kept in this bill, and it certainly was not. I mean, it was completely shattered in Build Back Better, which every single House Democrat except for one voted for, and Joe Biden desperately wanted to sign into law. His promise, his word as a Biden that he likes to talk about on taxes, was absolutely worth nothing. What the JCT, again, nonpartisan, And they get cited by the administration and by the Democrats all the time when they like the numbers. Oh, look at these credible numbers from JCT. JCT finds that the Schumer Mansion bill, quote, is a tax increase on nearly every American. That's the way it's summarized by the Wall Street Journal editors. And yet you've got Joe Manchin out here telling reporters, oh, there's nothing to do with tax. There's no taxes here. There's no taxes at all. And he got into it with Harris Faulkner saying, no, these are lies. Absolutely wrong. The exchange from earlier in the 11 a.m. hour Eastern continued in cut 26. $400,000 was supposed to be the cutoff. And I'm reading, and I am reading, Senator, that it's below that Who's paying any taxes? Who's paying any taxes that doesn't have a corporation that has revenue of over a billion dollars a year? Not one person. Not one person. Harris, you're assuming because they'll pass that on. The companies were paying zero. No, no, no. I'm asking a different question than you're answering. I'm saying Americans, $400,000 and below now, are going to be taxed. Their taxes are going to go up. That's a lie. That is a pure, outright lie. So their taxes are not going to go up? Not at all. Notice that he changed, actually. He changed the argument from there's nothing to do with taxes at all 
he said there are no taxes. Right, that was part of his answer that we played for you earlier. He said there's nothing on taxes at all. There's not one penny of change in taxes. And then with Faulkner pushing him, he says, well, there aren't any taxes from people who don't have a corporation with revenue of over a billion dollars a year. So there actually is a giant tax component to this, setting aside the huge expansion of the IRS and auditors and all of that, which will affect a lot of people. There is a big tax increase on businesses and manufacturers. He finally admitted it. After all the blanket denials, like we're crazy talking about tax increases, he finally admits, oh, yeah, there is this giant corporate tax increase, but it's not hitting an individual person. Well, who do you think works at corporations? People. Who buys goods and services from corporations? People. And that's why the JCT analysis looked at how the distribution of the tax increase, what would happen, what that would look like in reality. And their estimate is that it would hit a lot of people, workers and consumers, reducing their wages, reducing their income, harming them generally. So if he wants to say there is no personal income tax increase on anyone, that is true. To say that this has nothing to do with taxes, there's no tax hike, that's a lie, as he finally got around to kind of clarifying. And then they have to pretend like a huge corporate tax increase doesn't affect any real people in a negative way and doesn't affect all these people making under $400,000 a year, but it does. And that is the takeaway based on the analysis of the nonpartisan Joint Committee on Taxation. That's a problem that Manchin has. Now, another problem that Manchin has is that he said back in 2010, you should never raise taxes, which he's now kind of admitted this bill does. It absolutely does to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. You should never raise taxes during a recession. He said it in 2010. Former President Barack Obama said so in 2009. In fact, let's listen to them in their own words, cut 27. I don't think during a time of recession you mess with any of the taxes or increase any taxes. You don't raise taxes in a recession. The last thing you want to do is to raise taxes in the middle of uh, a recession. Well, we're in a recession now. Two consecutive quarters of negative growth. That's the definition that they've all used forever until suddenly it doesn't count anymore. And we talked about some of these fact checkers like PolitiFact pretending like the definition has changed. The definition is what it is. Manchin said you don't mess with or raise or increase any taxes during a recession. We're in a recession now. It could get a little bit better for a while and then go back into a worse recession in 23 or 24. We talked about that with Dagan McDowell last week. But on the dictionary, widely accepted definition, under that rubric, we are in a recession. And Joe Manchin has proposed big tax increases and all he can do is say it's not true and it's a lie, even though he sort of slipped up and admitted it. Because it's in there. It's in black and white. Like, don't insult us. It's right there. It's in the bill. It's not even a framework. It's a fully written bill. But the White House is also playing this game. Corrine Jean-Pierre got in on the action. Some sound as she was tangling with Peter Ducey. We'll get to that coming up. And by the way, Harris Faulkner took a little bit of exception earlier because Manchin at one point was like, oh, Harris, do you do you not want to help the people of America? Do you not want to help make America stronger? She said, don't make this personal. Of course, we all want a stronger America. He was going after her for some reason. 
it's almost like he doesn't really have strong arguments on the merits. So unfortunately, Manchin is stooping to some of this stuff. And I'm not surprised that the Biden people are stooping. They do that all the time. And we'll get to that audio as soon as we come back with Dana Perino also warming up in the bullpen. She'll be joining us shortly. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. You know, I do want to say that it is uh, quite ironic uh, that uh, uh, congressional Republicans are complaining or, or uh, have a false, a false outrage uh, on, on this Inflation Reduction Act uh, that is actually going to do something and help the American people lower cost uh, when, you know, when they have offered really nothing to do that. Back on the Guy Benson Show, that's Corinne Jean-Pierre at the White House. She really struggles just to even spit out a sentence or two in a row. But, you know, it's quite ironic, is the Alanis Morissette argument, that congressional Republicans are against the Inflation Reduction Act that's going to do something to help Americans. Well, the Wharton study at Penn showed that actually the bill would increase inflation slightly for the next two years. It would increase inflation in the near term and then have zero impact in the longer term. None. The White House trotted out one economist, the Democrats' favorite economist, Mark Zandi. This is the best that they've got. Ready for this? Mark Zandi said, I have put the numbers into my calculator and get ready for this, America. Get ready to feel the excitement about reducing inflation. He said that this bill, Manchin-Schumer, would potentially, in the best-case scenario, reduce inflation by one-third of 1% by 2031. (laughs) Oh, yeah, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, America, according to the White House, and their best estimate will curb inflation by a fraction of a point nine years from now. What a great deal. And KJP in the White House says, and also uh, the Joint Committee on Taxation, their number on the tax increases, that's not true. Don't believe that number. But I guess we should trust them. The people who said that inflation would be transitory. The people who say that the definition of recession isn't real. Oh, okay, yeah. We'll just take their word for it. They've been so credible and trustworthy on everything else, haven't they? Dana Perino up next on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Thank you for listening to The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day after the show is over around 6 p.m. Eastern. And with us now is Dana Perino, co-anchor of America's Newsroom, co-host of The Five, 
New York Times bestselling author, most recently of Everything Will Be Okay, available in paperback now. And Dana, it is always great to have you here. Thank you so much. Great to be here. I want to start with Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House. In Taiwan, there was a lot of chatter around this. Would she go? Would she not? Some pressure reportedly from the White House not to go. Lots of really escalatory rhetoric from Beijing. And she landed a few hours ago. She put out some social media content already defiant. Your thoughts on this trip and this visit? Well, thank you for having me. I love your show. Um, And it's always a pleasure to have you on America's Newsroom as well and to follow you on Twitter. Um, Thank you. I have a a few thoughts. One, we should never have been in this position in the first place, okay? Trips like this are kept secret for a reason, for this very reason. And I know that the White House must have been caught wind of it, or maybe the Pelosi's office alerted the DOD or National Security Council. That would be appropriate. And... Then the White House is so mad that they leak it. So that put her in danger. It escalated the situation. It made Republicans who have never said a kind word about Nancy Pelosi say (laughs) she is strong. She is right. And so once again, the White House, instead of just saying, let's just take it as it comes, lawmakers should be able to go to Taiwan. But another problem that they have, Guy, is there is an inability to be very clear on what the policy is. Now, when I was press secretary, any time the issue of Taiwan came up, I had to go and reread the one China policy to make sure that I was going to do it correctly. And that's because that's how sensitive it is. And President Xi is now like basically lost his mind, and he is desperate to be you know this leader for life. And he's got this big conference coming up in October, so he wants to be really tough. And so, unfortunately, I think that he's the one that's escalating the rhetoric. And we are not clear enough on our policy. And I'm glad that the speaker went. And yeah. it sounds like it went fine. And everything is going to be okay, at least for now. But this is certainly ratcheting up in, in the Pacific. Yeah, and I blame the Chinese for the rising tensions. Like, this is not her being provocative. It is them being provocative with their rhetoric, with the words that they're using. Uh, I lay this on them. But it sounds like we agree on this point. If you read between the lines and you read the reporting, it seems like not wanting to rankle the CCP, at least for a while, was the priority of the Biden administration. So they tried to squash this trip with a with a leak. Then they were, I guess, lobbying her behind the scenes not to go. And then once it became clear that she was going to go anyway and they were going to look even weaker, then they started to sort of come around a little bit publicly and say it's her own choice and our officials can go wherever they want to go. It just looks like they really badly mishandled this and kind of look weak both to Beijing and on Capitol Hill based on the way that they played this. That's right. And also, let's just take a moment to think about these brave people, some of the pictures that you're seeing of um, those Taiwanese who are holding up their signs, who are protesting, who welcome Speaker Pelosi with a big sign in one of the tallest buildings. Um, because this really, you know, it, it's about them. That's why she went. This is not about her. I don't believe that's about her wanting to just get attention. She gets plenty of attention. This is about those people who are wanting to live in freedom, wanting to have the economic freedom to pursue the opportunity that they're provided there. And they, they are staring down the barrel of a gun that is China. 
and they feel like they know what's going to happen to them. But I, I think some of these pictures are so inspiring. It's nice to be inspired by people who really care about freedom uh, as much as these guys do. Yep, by the Ukrainians and by the Taiwanese, and it's a big mm-hmm. reminder, at least it should be, to how fortunate and blessed we are here and how talking about freedom here is in some ways cheap, certainly not cheap for those who put their lives on the line in the military, but it means something extremely personal in those parts of the world where you've got an authoritarian government breathing down your neck or invading you in the case of Ukraine. Now, Danny, you talked about the one China policy, how you'd go and brush up on it when you were press secretary. So you had every little detail correct because of the sensitivity. I want to play you part of a montage. I don't know if you saw this. The Republican National Committee put this together. It seems like the new White House press secretary, really not that new anymore, Corrine Jean-Pierre, she has a particular phrase that she's fallen in love with. She uses it a lot. Her predecessor would talk about circling back, and that became our little fun nickname for her, Circle Back Saki, on the show. And I get sometimes when you're at the podium, someone will ask you a question, and you need to come back to them and and ask a few questions and then answer it perhaps on another day. This is the way that KJP has been responding a lot of the time to many questions, and we cut this down to only about 20 seconds. It goes on for two minutes. There's more than 100 examples of her saying this already on the job. Cut 24. I don't have anything. I, I don't have anything. I don't have anything. I, I don't have anything. I don't have anything. I just don't have anything. I don't have anything. You don't have anything. I just don't have anything. Don't have anything. So I don't have anything. 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 I just don't have anything. I just don't have anything. I don't have anything. Again, I don't have anything. I don't have anything. I don't have anything. Don't have anything. Now, Dana, because we value your time, we will not play you the remaining minute and 40 <laughs> seconds of that montage. All different. Every these. Nope, all specifically different. And it goes on. Wow. They In this montage, they do a hundred different times that she said it. And I just wonder, in terms of best practices, what you think of that and how you assess overall the job performance of Corinne Jean-Pierre so far. Well, I always am kind to the press secretary because um, I understand how hard the job is. And she's not working with a lot of great material. Okay, And I think one of the reasons she doesn't have anything is because they don't give her anything. However, I do think also it's your responsibility to go and get the information. And one of the things I would uh, ask of my deputies, and they did an excellent job, is I, I demanded I should never be surprised by a question at the briefing. And there are just some things that you have an answer about. For example, a few weeks ago, one of those, I don't have anything on that for you, was about the baby formula crisis. Right. When you are in an ongoing crisis, you just have to have something in your back pocket that you always say. Um, the other thing is maybe her deputies need to figure out a way to help her have more information. And I think the reporters, I, you know, I wouldn't say they're treating her with kid gloves. I don't think they are. I, I think it's pretty clear that there's a consensus building that she's not able to effectively communicate on behalf of the president. And one of the things that was very strange yesterday, I'd love your take on this, was that the outgoing communications director, Kate Bedingfield, is now apparently changing her mind, and she's going to stay. Yeah, she's back incoming, I guess. Yeah, I guess. And I find that some of it, that, that's, the story's just read very strangely to me. Like something obviously happened that she felt that she wanted to leave, and then she got talked back into staying and now there's tension within the White House because apparently there's one camp who thinks that the communication strategy has not been good enough, but another camp that thinks that 
Corinne Jean-Pierre is not going to be able to handle things. And then more and more, you see John Kirby, uh, who is a National Security Council spokesperson. Yeah, at the podium. Speaking out more and more. Exactly. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see him do more of that. I mean, he's doing Sunday shows where you don't just get asked about uh, foreign policy. You can get asked about anything. Do you agree with that consensus that you just mentioned, at least that appears to be growing in the White House, that Jean-Pierre cannot effectively speak on behalf of the president? Not necessarily. I think one of the things, uh, the other thing that happens is that they have very, very stringent COVID rules at the White House, which is why the president is only now getting COVID for the first time. And I don't think that they spend a lot of time with him. And I don't think he's very decisive. You see that also growing as a criticism within the White House, that the decisions are slow to get made, that they're contemplated for way too long. And that might be why she doesn't have anything for anybody on that, this or that, because they haven't made decisions yet. might not be her fault. Meanwhile, we have the vice president, Kamala Harris. I saw this yesterday. Now, sometimes when she's speaking off the cuff, she gets into some trouble. She says something that's kind of cringeworthy or repeats herself. In this case, it appeared that she was reading a prepared text. This was teleprompters, the whole thing. And here is how she concluded this prepared speech in Cut 23. While we send our prayers and our love, we also, with each day, renew our commitment to the urgency of now and the ability that we have collectively, all of us in it together, to do something about it. I mean, it, it's just kind of filler words, Dana. And I know that a few of her top speechwriters have quit, so maybe that's what we're hearing there. But it doesn't really seem like they're sending their best when it comes to the vice president and a lot of her public rhetoric. Well, again, I'm, a, I, I, I'm boy, reluctant to blame the staff because Kamala Harris has been doing this for a long time. And perhaps she always spoke like this and nobody noticed. I mean, she didn't get very far. She was the first to drop out even before the primaries in the presidential uh, campaign in, uh, what was that, 2020. I, I'm just a little bit shocked. <laughs> and no, I she was a statewide office holder in California, but... then a senator, right? I mean, she has a long yeah. career. I guess maybe I, 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 I find it very hard to believe that this is a new tick of hers. It must have been how it has been all along. And it only is now being scrutinized because she's the vice president of the United States and everything she says is going to be recorded and played. But if you if, if that was actually in the teleprompter, and I would assume, I, I know that most every principal I've ever worked for has been engaged in the text before they read it out loud in public. And if that was actually written for her and in the teleprompter and she reviewed it, and then okayed it, and then went ahead and said it. That's in, that's incredible to me. It's, it's, it's just, just such so a banal, and a missed opportunity. Yeah, yeah. On the messaging versus substance front, this is something that I know you have talked about many times before. It's sort of almost one of Dana's cardinal rules of politics, which is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to put those words into your mouth or say this is one of your hard and fast rules if it's not. But I've heard you talk about this before. Oftentimes, much of the time, when a political operation is obsessed with their messaging problem, 
often that's really just a deflection away from or masking a substance problem, a reality problem. And, and whether it's, you know, the White House trying to change the definition of recession or to just dismiss out of hand condemnations or criticisms of this new bill that they're going to say is inflationary or reducing inflation rather and sort of playing rhetorical games there. You hear a lot of Democrats quoted and frustrated staffers sometimes whispering to reporters about how the messaging operation is a problem and needs help. And you were just talking about that with one of their top people leaving and then it was a false start. She's staying and the press secretary. I just feel like ultimately when the results are what they are, they can obsess over the words and the meaning and the spin and how to try to change this word and how it's consumed by people. That all just kind of seems like noise. At least that's how I look at it. Yeah. Whenever you hear we have a communications problem, dismiss that out of hand because it's a fact problem. When fact problems exist, that means your communications is not going to be good. When the facts are good, the communications are good. It's very, very simple, actually. Now, there are things that you could look at. Uh, for example, I'm thinking of Disney when they issued that statement um, on the transgender issue down in Florida and the Don't Say Gay mm-hmm. Bill or whatever it was called. Mm-hmm. Um, that, was, that was definitely – I would say that was both a policy and a communications problem. You can have facts that might not be good, like maybe your stock is down, okay, and then you have to explain that. But it's not a communications problem if the article is – if the headline is X company's stock is down, that's just a fact. That's just the way that, that it is. So they refuse to announce those facts. I'm actually a little bit fascinated by – let's just take Joe Manchin, for example. He's signing up for every interview out there like he has a case to make, but he's not actually arguing anything or landing any facts down. He's yes. just speaking a lot of platitudes. Yes, that's a communication. That's that is not just a communications problem. That's a policy problem because your spin can't keep up with the truth as people dig into this uh, new what are they calling it? Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. Yes. And he's claiming, as we talked about at the top of the show, that there's nothing to do with tax increases in there, which just is like blatantly false. It's it's right there in the bill, and you can only say I agree to disagree so often if you don't have anything of substance to push back with, and that's what struck Brett Bayer in his interview on Fox News Sunday. He and I talked about it yesterday here on the show. By the way, Dana, I look up at my monitor here in the studio, press conference at the White House briefing room. Do you care to guess who's at the briefing podium right now? It's got to be Kirby. they got foreign it's, policy news. It's Kirby. It's Kirby, just to your point earlier. Last question, yeah. Dana Perino. On this president and this presidency and where we are as a country – We've seen some excited sort of journalism wish casting in the last few days that this is the Biden comeback. I mean, he's got the wind in his sails, the winds at his back. Biden is turning this thing around. He could be the next Reagan. They seem pretty excited about that. Uh, It seems I'm going to be very polite and call that premature. (laughs) I wonder what you think. I'm glad you asked, because to me, this is so tried and true for any Democrat, especially a Democratic president. The media wants so badly to write comeback kids' stories that it's like they had them pre-written as if they were obituaries. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, I get that. It it might be time to run that comeback story. We we might not get another chance. So let's uh, let's go ahead and run it on Thursday. 
I know you've got to run. I would just say one thing that one area the media has constantly missed in evaluating Biden is what normal people feel. I'm blown away that they think every successful handshake deal in the Senate moves the needle in swing states where inflation is around 13 percent. That doesn't seem plausible to me. I think journalists could do themselves a lot of favors by getting to know a lot more real people who don't share their worldview. But that is not something that many of them seem curious about. And so here we are. Dana, we've got to leave it there. Co-anchor of America's Newsroom, co-host of The Five. Everything will be okay in paperback available now. Dana, thank you so much. Great to have you with me. Me, Be with you. (laughs) Both. It goes both ways. And I look forward to TV soon as well. Thanks, Dana. And we will be right back after this. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. It is the Guy Benson Show. It's primary day across multiple states. I'll be joining the Fox News Radio network coverage in the 10 p.m. hour this evening. And a lot of eyes are on Arizona, on Missouri. On Michigan. Now, there are some races also in Washington state and Kansas as well. But at least the big primary races that I'm most interested in, and I think a lot of people are Arizona governor, Arizona Senate, Missouri Senate. And we'll see if the Republicans can dodge some bullets in some of these races. And then in Michigan, not just the gubernatorial primary, but that third congressional district and the Democrats playing in that race to boost someone against Peter Meyer, who we've had on this program and who I really admire. So we will have analysis tomorrow of what happens tonight. Maybe Josh Krasauer, perhaps others, but some big ones on the docket this evening. And of course, we're going to have that covered on this program. It is the Guy Benson Show. Much more to get to, including Kevin Brady, congressman from Texas. Upcoming, don't go anywhere. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a new hour on the Guy Benson Show, our middle hour out of three. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website where the podcast is free of charge and on demand every day if you can't listen live. GuyBensonShow.com. I'll be on the evening edit tonight in the 6 p.m. hour, Fox Business Network. See you on TV in a couple hours. First, here on the radio, a Fox News alert. The Dow down today significantly, sagging 401 points at the close, ending at 32,396. And with us now is Congressman Kevin Brady. The top Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee, he represents his district in the great state of Texas. And, Congressman, it's always good to have you here. Guy, thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I want to ask you about inflation and the Democrats' legislation that they've put together, at least over on the Senate side. But before we do that, just quickly your thought on Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan There was a debate whether it was going to happen, whether it should happen. Well, she is there now. What do you make of that? And I've also heard reports that she had invited some Republicans to come with her 
And some of those, or I guess all of those Republicans that she had invited, declined for one reason or another. Would this be an even more powerful statement if it were a bipartisan trip? Just your thoughts on Taiwan. You know, I I think one China uh, absolutely cannot dictate, should not be allowed to dictate where our public officials travel, including members of Congress or a speaker. I think uh, it's important for us to continue to pressure China. She's been pretty weak on China for the most part. So I am uh, pleasantly surprised uh, that she understood the importance of this. I think it would have been a stronger in a bipartisan way. But look, there isn't much partisan or bipartisanship going on with this speaker. So I'm not surprised there. All right. So let's talk about the economy, inflation and recession. I think these are all you know key terms right now, some of which are disputed, I think, for political reasons. But we got what late last week word that Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin had come together and hammered out a deal and a bill, hundreds of billions of dollars in tax increases and hundreds of billions of dollars in new spending. Very odd choices in my mind in the middle of recession and inflation. We have both of those right now, but that's where they're going. And I just want to start with this. We have heard from Manchin himself. In fact, we'll just play it so I'm not paraphrasing him. He's telling something similar to this to anyone who will listen. His answer to a question earlier, cut 19. Listen. What about the fact that, you know, uh, taxes on those uh, making uh, $200,000 or less? And- There's nothing on taxes at all. There's not one one penny of change in taxes. I have no idea where they're coming at. Let me tell you the only thing that we did. The only thing that was done is basically we looked at taking everything out that could be looked to be uh, to fanning the fires of inflation or inflaming it. And there's nothing there. Okay, Congressman, you, as I mentioned, are the ranking Republican on the Ways and Means Committee in the House. This is your bread and butter. You were one of the driving forces behind tax reform and tax cuts back in 2017. You live and breathe this stuff and you have for a long time. I would imagine you've at least glanced over this bill that the Democrats have proposed. When Joe Manchin says, quote, there's nothing on taxes at all, there's not one one penny of change in taxes in this bill, what's your response to that? Yeah, my my answer would be respectfully, Senator, read your bill. It starts with over $350 billion in higher taxes first pretty devastating tax on made-in-America manufacturing. The companies that hire the most, that build the most in America, are taxed the most in this bill. Workers uh, also will see a tax increase. The Joint Committee on Taxation uh, is really the scorekeeper for Congress, very independent, very bipartisan, indicates that nearly every income level, including people making less than $10,000 a year, will see a tax hike. So there is no question there are major tax hikes in this bill. And by the way, yeah, we're, this is the same. We're, we are in a recession. We've got shrinking paychecks, shrinking uh, economy, shrinking workforce. Other countries are cutting their taxes to lower and fight inflation. You know, what country in the right mind increases taxes right now, especially on the businesses whose jobs and manufacturing most depend on? Yeah, and I want to get to that point and uh, dig a little deeper on it in just a moment. But to your point... Obviously, there are hundreds of billions of dollars in tax increases in the bill itself. I don't understand why Manchin is saying that those don't exist at all. He kind of hedged finally a little bit on Fox earlier with Harris Faulkner saying, oh, well, it's not taxes for people. It's just for certain corporations. But 
when you look at how these things actually get passed down to workers and to consumers and to individuals, there's no such thing as a tax increase that doesn't affect people, right? That's that's the point. That's the crux of the analysis that JCT put out there that Manchin, I guess, is completely ignoring. And I saw the White House earlier saying oh, that that should not be taken seriously. Don't believe those numbers. Don't believe the Joint Committee on Taxation, which, by the way, the White House has counted on and referenced before to bolster their arguments. This is an argument that goes against them. And, the, and again, the bottom line is, to your point, which I think the American people get in a big way, you know, companies don't pay taxes, they collect them. And so you see higher taxes get paid for by workers. You get paid, it comes up, especially in this economy, it comes out in higher prices, which lands on consumers. So there's no question that those tax hikes will be inflationary and they will land. It will violate President Biden's pledge on taxes. Oh, there's no doubt about that. And he's violated that many times over. We've made that case. But, you know, you were just talking about how it's a bad idea to raise taxes during a recession. And some listeners might say, "Okay, well, here's a conservative Republican from Texas saying that. But I want to play you what we played earlier. Here's Joe Manchin and Barack Obama uh, years back, but in a time of recession and around recession, making exactly the same argument, cut 27, I don't think during a time of recession you mess with any of the taxes or increase any taxes. You don't raise taxes in a recession. The last thing you want to do is to raise taxes in the middle of uh, a recession. Chuck Schumer said the exact same thing in 2008 as well. So I know they used to have the same definition as the rest of us on recession. That seems to be changing. And they used to believe that you shouldn't raise taxes during a recession. And I guess in order to get around that, they're saying that there isn't a recession, even though there is. And these don't really count as tax increases, even though they are. It just feels like a lot of games being played. But the economic realities, Congressman, are unchanged. Yeah, they, they are. Look, this economy shrunk for six months in a row. That is the classic definition of recession. That's how the last 10 recessions, by the way, were identified immediately as an economy that is contracting. And if, if you look at people's paychecks, with raging inflation, their paychecks are contracting. If you look at the workforce, the last three months straight, our workforce is shrinking and contracting as well. Certainly this is a recession, but I do know the White House is just will do anything not to say that word. And the media that backs them is making sure that, that, that the word recession is quickly dismissed. It's frustrating because I think the bulk of Americans already feel like they're in a recession because this is such a cruel economy for them. Yeah, and that's what the polling has borne out here for a while. One last point quickly on inflation. I laughed out loud, actually, in the first hour on the show, reading the spin from the White House. They're citing, of course, Mark Zandi, who says that, oh, no, this is a uh, reducing of inflation, the Inflation Reduction Act. Trust us, nine years from now, inflation might be reduced by one-third of 1% by 2031. That's the big talking point that they've got. Meanwhile, the Tax Foundation, nonpartisan, this just out minutes ago, from McConnell's office, quote, by reducing long-run economic growth, this bill may actually worsen inflation by constraining the productive uh, the productive capacity of the economy, end quote. Congressman, 30 seconds, your reaction on the inflation piece. Yes, this is inflationary. You can't spend this type of money without fueling inflation further. And then add those tax hikes on families begin and kick in next year as inflation continues to rate. So there's no question this will be inflationary. There is almost nothing here to cut the deficit as well. 
Those are all budget gimmicks. And by the way, for families, they're going to unleash 80,000 new IRS agents on families, yep. farmers, and small businesses. Yep. That, too, doubling. I would say, is cruel. Yep, they're doubling the whole force to go out there and audit people. Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas, we always appreciate your time, Congressman. Thanks, Guy. Take care. We'll be right back after this on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. So Brian Griffin is the deputy press secretary for Governor Ron DeSantis down in Florida. And I guess someone from The View reached out to the office asking to try to book Governor DeSantis on The View. And Mr. Griffin decided to publicly post his response to the booker at that show. Here's what he wrote. Dear so-and-so, he blacked out the name. Thanks for the invite. I understand you were sending this request on behalf of your team. But are the hosts of The View really interested in hearing from Governor DeSantis about all of the important work he is doing on behalf of Floridians to protect their health and livelihoods, to stand up for parents and children, to defend freedom? Which of the below statements from the hosts of The View do you recommend our team consider when deciding if the interview would be a genuine pursuit of the truth or worth our time? Joy Behar, August 2021, and they have a link to each of these. Behar said, quote, you're just short of calling Governor DeSantis a negligent, homicidal sociopath because that's what he is. She added, what is he doing? He's risking the lives of children, children's parents and their grandparents, anyone they may come into contact with so he can appeal to his white supremacist base so he can continue his career and get reelected, end quote. Sonny Hostin, June of 2022, quote, death Santis. I think he's a fascist and a bigot. So we've heard from Joy and Sonny, who are both inappropriately named given their demeanors and general view on life. Joy and Sonny, those two. Woo. How about Ana Navarro? The conservative, or one of the conservatives, quote-unquote, they have there, April of this year, on Governor DeSantis's agenda, quote, it's anti-black, it's anti-gay, it's anti-LGBTQ plus community, and for some reason the Republican base responds to it. It's anti-American. It's what happens in Venezuela. Here's another one from Sonny. On DeSantis's policies, it started with CRT. Let's remember that. And those are anti-history laws, anti-black history laws, really. If you start coming after black people, what comes next, right? Of course, the LGBTQ plus community and then women and then other marginalized groups. So those are the quotes, just a few of them, that the DeSantis team pulled from The View in discussing their boss. And this is how the email to The View booker trying to get DeSantis on the show, here's how it concludes from the deputy press secretary down there in Florida. We will pass on this offer. And please note, we don't coordinate appearances or events of a political nature from the official office. Our role is to serve the people of Florida. Thank you, Brian Griffin, deputy press secretary, executive office of the governor. So I think this is a very good deserved smackdown that show is unhinged the hosts of that show are as i point out all the time so consistently and aggressively ignorant that it actually takes work to be that ignorant 
I don't have a problem with people who are to the left and have different opinions if they have genuine beliefs that are backed up by facts and arguments that they can sort of justify and say, I understand your point. I disagree with it for these reasons. Let's have the discussion. That is not what happens on that show. It is a pile on. And it's like these ladies roll in, having done absolutely no prep ever, knowing almost nothing about anything, even though it's their job to know a few things about something. And then they have extremely heated conversations about politics. That's just a giant orgy of misinformation and stupidity. That's a show for an hour every day. They obviously hate DeSantis. Death Santis, fascist, bigot, homicidal sociopath, negligent, un-American, anti-American. I mean, these are the words that they have used against DeSantis. And they're like, please come on the show. Would the governor like to come on the show? And I enjoy that Brian Griffin, on behalf of DeSantis, does not explicitly say no. He just asks, which of these statements do you think underscore how genuine you are in this invitation to give the governor a fair hearing and pursue truth. That would make this appearance worth our time. Then they run through it. He says, we will pass on the offer. So that's basically a double middle finger, which I think is a completely reasonable and rational response, given what that show is and what that show is not. And the treatment in absentia of the governor on that show all the time. Now, that being said, let me add this. I think it might benefit Ron DeSantis to show up anyway. Go into the lion's den in New York City. Confront these people. Let them have all their gotcha questions. He is smarter than all of them. You might hate Ron DeSantis. He might hate his policies. It's hard to deny that he's a very smart person, and he knows often in granular detail of what he speaks on a whole host of issues. I think he would run circles around any one of them. And if it's a giant mess and they're all screaming at him and he can never get a word in edgewise, I think that's a really bad look for them. And as long as he doesn't lose his cool and can remember to be at least something of a happy warrior and smile from time to time. I think that's something he can work on. I think either way, he probably wins the exchange and is willing to show part of his brand is he will stand up and fight for people. And sometimes you stand up to bullies. That show is a bullying show run by bullies. The point of the show is to bully, not to inform. It is to create an echo chamber that demonizes Half of the country. And I think DeSantis is not really scared of a challenge. He's shown that over and over again. This could be sort of a wild setting for him. But if he has his eyes on a prize beyond reelection, and that's task number one in November, the bigger the number, the better for him. But if he wants to go to the next level, as is widely speculated and or believed by a lot of people, I think being able to wade into that kind of ideological and intellectual cesspool and hold your own is a worthwhile thing an endeavor to at least check off the list at some point whether this is the moment for that now or down the line i'm just saying it could benefit him to do it 
But as an initial response to this request from this show, I think this was fabulous. And we'll see how this potential relationship does or does not pan out in the coming months or even perhaps the coming years. The Guy Benson Show resumes right after this break. George Soros has something to say. He wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal about crime and all of the left-wing soft-on-crime DAs that he has funded. Any remorse? Spoiler alert, none. I will react and respond to Mr. Soros right after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast always free. At Guy Benson Show on Twitter and on Instagram. I wrote a piece today at TownHall.com about George Soros, who is the 91-year-old, I believe, billionaire, who's a left-winger, who has been funding the professional left and the entire constellation of the left-wing causes in the United States of America for many years. And his is the kind of money in politics that progressives love. They profess to be horrified by money in politics. It's abhorrent. It is a corrupting influence. It's buying democracy or whatever. But they don't actually believe that at all. They believe in their own power. And as long as there's money flowing their direction, they are perfectly fine with it. That goes back to One major example, Barack Obama in 2008, who was all in favor of public financing of elections. we got to get money out of our politics or at least limit it. And that was something that he strongly believed until he didn't, until he realized that as a presidential candidate, he could bring in a fortune as a fundraiser and totally dwarf and swamp the Republicans and McCain, who actually believed in public financing of elections. Whether you agree or not, McCain believed in it and lived by that. Obama said he believed in it, and then he realized, oh, wait, no. My power is much more likely if I ignore my supposed principle on this, so it's gone. And he shot a little hostage video excitedly explaining why he was going to violate his conscience because asterisk. And the asterisk is left-wing power matters most. Above all else, power is what must be prioritized. Which is also why you're seeing these Democrats out here and Speaker Pelosi, who we've praised today on the Taiwan front. But I think in an egregious move, she's defending her party, funding these election truther, election denying MAGA Republicans in their primaries to take out the types of Republicans that she at least pretends she wants the party to look more like. Now, we needed an adult, responsible Republican Party that's healthy and not a cult of personality. But we are going to try to get the good ones to lose in a primary so we can then beat the crazies in a general. And she basically just shrugged. We played the clip for Brett Bayer yesterday saying, well, look, you got to win. So the principle about democracy and country over party, that's all nice. That's all well and good. Just like the opposition to money in politics is nice. That's all well and good. But really what they always want, their North Star, their guiding principle is, do we win? Do we have power? And if the answer is yes, they do it. And if the answer is no, they don't. It really is that simple, with very few exceptions. But they demand, and the media joins the chorus, that Republicans 
often do the opposite. You must do these other things. It's more important. It transcends party politics. Don't ask us to do that. No, our party politics matters a lot. So we're going to do whatever we need. But you need to step up and put country over party. And we will do whatever we want. We will put party over country whenever we feel like we need to or want to. Thank you very much. And they just count on never being called out for it. Anyway, I digress. The point of the monologue here is rooted in this piece I wrote for townhall.com earlier about Soros. And I know I'm not supposed to talk about George Soros, right? Because the argument from the left is any reference to Soros is anti-Semitism because he happens to be Jewish, which I think is crazy. Left-wingers attack right-wing billionaires and donors all the time, including Jewish ones. Right, Sheldon Adelson for years got all sorts of barbs and attacks from the left. All the Koch brothers attacks, they aren't Jewish. Adelson was. It's like they just want to set up a whole different set of rules, which is right-wing billionaires and contributors to right-wing or conservative or Republican causes, they are fair game. But coming after our big funders, we're going to find a way to make that problematic and not acceptable or even bigotry. Now, there are some people who will take their criticisms and cross a line into something problematic, but simply mentioning them by name and telling the truth about what they do in a non-conspiratorial way is absolutely legitimate political discourse. And I'm not going to be afraid to utter the words George Soros on this show because there are some bad faith hacks who are going to pretend that is somehow an expression of hate. It's not. I have a problem with his ideology. I have a problem with how he spends his money, boosting causes and people that I think are bad for the country. And if I think that, I'm going to say it because it's a free country, and that's my right as well. I have a platform. He has a platform. This is how America should work. And I'm tired of people trying to disqualify entire topics based on some made-up standard that only applies in a given moment to people that they don't like and they would never apply to themselves. So one of the many things that Soros has done through the years, and this has been a more recent phenomenon, a more recent passion project for him, is to pour millions of dollars into district attorney races. And he's backing left-wing DAs who are, I would say, somewhere on the soft-on-crime to pro-criminal spectrum. And we've seen examples of this, and we've talked about it on the show, all across the country. Some of those biggest names in those biggest cities and those largest jurisdictions doing the most harm, many, if not most, of those names have had their campaign coffers filled by George Soros. So because crime is a big issue in this election, as it should be, it's a top-tier issue, and Soros is getting attacked and the people that he has financed are getting attacked, I think rightfully— on substance, on outcomes, on policy, Soros has written an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal defending these people, defending these district attorneys, and saying he has no intention of stopping in terms of funding their campaigns. He's very proud of these district attorneys and their quote-unquote pursuit of justice and equity. Here's part of what he writes in his Wall Street Journal op-ed. came out over the weekend. Quote, like most of us, I'm concerned about crime. All right, let me just stop right there. I'm sure George Soros, to some extent, is concerned about crime. 
I think he's less concerned, certainly less urgently concerned about crime, as someone who's a billionaire who doesn't have to live in dangerous neighborhoods that are getting more dangerous. I think the people who are most concerned about crime, legitimately personally concerned about crime, they don't have the resources and the funds to buy a small army of private security like a billionaire like George Soros does. So he can say he's concerned about crime. Fine. I don't think he has really the kind of skin in the game that affected people actually do. He talks about his many years as a philanthropist. He says our justice system is rife with injustices that make us all less safe. He says it's a false choice between justice and safety. Although sometimes in some of these places it does kind of feel that way, where the quote-unquote social justice crowd makes a lot of people a lot less safe by doing a lot of favors and coddling of criminals. And I say this as someone who actually is somewhat open to a number of different reforms on the criminal justice front, and I've defended and endorsed some of them. I think there's been a massive overcorrection. I think we've gone far too far in one direction down the wrong path because of some of these officials whose campaigns have been heavily funded by Soros. He says, we spend $81 billion every year keeping about 2 million people in prisons and jails. Now, do some of those people maybe deserve a second chance, or is it wasting resources to have them behind bars? In some cases, probably yes. Do a hell of a lot of those people need to be behind bars to keep the rest of us safe? Yes. The fact that we have that many people imprisoned is not necessarily unto itself a great argument to say it's a waste of resources. I think we spend taxpayer money for very good reason, keeping dangerous people out of the public and behind big walls and bars because they've earned that through their choices and through their behaviors and their crimes. He says, quote, in recent years, this is Soros, reform-minded prosecutors and other law enforcement officials around the country have been coalescing around an agenda that promises to be more effective and just. As you see the scenes playing out in some of these major cities, New York, Chicago, D.C., L.A., S.F., Philly, etc., do they strike you as more effective and more just? And if so, effective for whom? And furnishing justice to whom? He says this approach, quote, is popular and it's effective. This is why I've supported the election and more recently the re-election of prosecutors who support reform. I have done it transparently and I have no intention of stopping. Soros concludes, judging by the results, the public likes what it's hearing. Do they? His DA, Chiza Boudin, the son of terrorists, literally, was just thrown out on his ass by the voters of San Francisco in a recall election. He lost by 20 points. He got blown out because of this, quote unquote, effective and just reform minded approach to prosecution, which is to say legalizing crime in a lot of cases. And this revolving door of criminals back on the street, police with a hand tied behind their back collectively, defanged, their efforts wasted in many cases. And it got so dangerous, so intolerable in San Francisco, perhaps the most famous bastion of leftism in the country, that the voters, the very diverse voters in that city had enough and threw out Chesa Boudin. But Soros says, hey, this is popular. People love this. Down in Los Angeles, 
George Gascon. They've got enough signatures, it looks like, to throw him out as well. More than 90% of the line prosecutors, the career prosecutors, whose actual job it is to put criminals behind bars, more than 90% of them in Los Angeles County support the recall of the boss because of the disaster that he is presiding over with absolutely harmful, dangerous policies. And there's a good chance that that guy is going to get thrown out. In Los Angeles, another left-wing place. Very popular. The people love it, says Soros, as he keeps writing these checks. In another passage in this Wall Street Journal op-ed by Soros, he writes this. Serious scholars researching causes behind the recent increase in crime have pointed to other factors. So he's trying to downplay the impact of these policies. The prosecutor's decisions, the prosecutorial discretion, some of the bail reform stuff that's totally nuts in New York, for example. He's saying, well, the experts say there are other factors behind the rise in crime. It's not either or. It's both, by the way. But here are the examples he gives. A disturbing rise in mental illness among young people due to the isolation imposed by COVID lockdowns. That's one. And I agree. And who, pray tell, Mr. Soros, was responsible overwhelmingly for those COVID lockdowns? It was liberal progressive Democrats in major cities, your allies, your beneficiaries, your ideological comrades. It's your side that did this. So one of your counterpoints is also laid at your feet. Another one he gives, another example, another factor behind the rise in crime, quote, a pullback in policing in the wake of public criminal justice reform protests. Yeah. Police pulling back after protesting in a lot of riots that people defended or justified for quite some time. Absolutely true that that's a factor. The police were demoralized. The types of political and law enforcement leadership that you have financed, sir, have convinced cops on the beat And the men and women who put their lives on the line that doing their job aggressively in a robust way isn't worth it because the people in charge, the politicians, the people that you're donating to don't have their back because they don't. So the police have pulled back. They're not aggressively enforcing the law. They're not rushing to scenes. They're waiting and cleaning up afterwards in some cases. It is making neighborhoods and situations much more dangerous. It's amazing that he put that in his list of reasons. I guess it's honest, but that's another one that he is, I would say, indirectly but palpably responsible for. He also talks about guns. He says many of the same people who call for more punitive criminal justice policies also support looser gun laws. Well, what they could do is actually prosecute and get convictions on gun crimes and illegal possession crimes. Those convictions in many of these jurisdictions have plummeted. The prosecutions have gone down. That's a choice that these people that he's backing have made. So maybe the complaint should go to them. He also says a lot of the rise in murder and violent crime is coming in Republican-led states, some Republican states with Republican governors. And he just doesn't really want to talk about the fact that these are usually in deep blue cities within a red state. As if Greg Abbott is responsible for what happens completely in Houston or Brian Kemp Same with Atlanta. You look at some of the specific examples. He doesn't want to blame the left-wing law enforcement officials, the left-wing prosecutors, the left-wing mayors. No, let's 
pin that on the Republicans. But it only goes up to the governor level. It doesn't go up to the next level, the presidential level, obviously. Can't be Biden's fault either. It's just such a silly, misleading argument. But he deploys it in this piece. I have one more point to make, and I want to illustrate it based on some stats coming out of New York City on crime. I wonder if Soros is proud of these two. We'll get to that next. Guy Benson will be right back. We are back on The Guy Benson Show talking about this op-ed by George Soros in The Wall Street Journal. And let's just wrap it up. In New York, Alvin Bragg, the DA there, a left-wing government, Kathy Hochul on down in Albany. These are outcomes that George Soros likes. He has donated to a lot of these people, including Alvin Bragg, the DA. You may have seen that video a week or two ago of that teenager severely beating a cop, trying to choke him. That teenager was out was released after committing a previous crime, which gave him the opportunity to then attack and beat and choke a police officer, after which he was released again. Because that's how it works. That's the effective and just approach to crime, apparently. That's going so well that the people of San Francisco and L.A. and elsewhere have had enough. The New York Post did a review, and here's what they found in New York City. Roughly one out of every five crooks busted for burglary or theft in New York last year got rearrested on a felony charge within 60 days of being put back on the streets. The NYPD's five-year comparisons show 24% of last year's burglary suspects were rearrested within 60 days, up from about 8% in 2017, an increase of 208%. And the story quotes an NYPD detective saying they're letting everybody out. We see it every single day. Released on recognizance, ROR, ROR, ROR. That's how it's working in New York. It's what's happening in some of these other places. And George Soros, who's very concerned about crime, he says, he sits back. He surveys the damage being done that his bank account has helped finance in a lot of these places. And he declares himself very pleased, totally unapologetic, and eager to keep funding these people so they can continue wielding their power in a way that puts so many people in danger and in a way that empowers criminals who are operating often with impunity. They don't fear the police at all. The system is working very well for them. I guess that's what social justice looks like. For law-abiding citizens, for law enforcement, not so much. And George Soros just wants everyone to know in the Wall Street Journal that he's very proud of all of it. So you can let him make all these campaign donations. He can do that. That is within his prerogative. You may not have anywhere near the deep pockets that he has, but you have exactly as many votes as he has. And there will be a chance to vote on a mass scale very soon in a few months. And I encourage you all to do so. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Jennifer Griffin is here. Senator Joni Ernst. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday. Thanks very much for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day on demand after the show is over just after 6 p.m. Eastern. 
You can follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. That's Twitter and Instagram. And this hour is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink, our friends over there, as they expand all across the country by popular demand. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they're sold near you. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Joining us now is Jennifer Griffin, national security correspondent here at Fox News. And Jennifer, it's always good to have you. Thank you, Guy. Great to be with you. Well, this big announcement yesterday, we got some rumors and buzz earlier in the day than the confirmation from the president last evening that Ayman al-Zawahiri, a senior figure in al-Qaeda, was killed in a U.S. drone strike in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan. Before we get into some of the other details and implications here, just share with our audience a little bit about Zawahiri, because I think there are probably some younger listeners who perhaps have never heard of him until he was killed. Well, it's really important to remember that Ayman al-Zawahiri was really bin Laden's right hand. He and bin Laden merged forces back in the 80s uh, when Zawahi was an Egyptian doctor who was a, the head of Egyptian Islamic Jihad. He had been jailed in Egypt for trying to overthrow the government there. He was uh, part of the roundup after Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, was assassinated. And he fled to uh, to Saudi Arabia and then became a doctor in, Af- in uh, Peshawar, Pakistan, treating the Afghan warriors, the Mujahideen, who were fighting the Soviets in the 80s. So this goes way back. He was 71 years old, and he took over when Osama bin Laden was uh, was killed by SEAL Team 6 in Abbottabad, Pakistan. But he's been sick for some time. He's more of a figurehead leader. He was certainly uh, one of the planners of 9-11. This was viewed as, you know, incredibly important for the CIA to sort of get full closure on the 9-11 attackers. Uh, This is a huge uh, intelligence coup for the CIA because he was found in downtown Kabul in a a guest house that was run by Sirajuddin Haqqani, who was, uh, you know, is the interior minister of the Taliban's new government. So he was living as a guest of the Taliban in plain sight. And the fact that the CIA could send two Hellfire missiles in to the compound and not kill any other uh, people or civilians in the compound and just hit him when he came out onto the um, the balcony without sending any U.S. troops there on the ground. We were told there were no U.S. personnel on the ground. This is, you know, really quite an extraordinary feat. Um, it's been frustrating that Zawahi was able to avoid capture for all these years. He was basically hiding out along the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan, most likely with the knowledge of Pakistan's ISI, the intelligence service. And mm-hmm. and it's only because the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan that he felt comfortable enough to move to be the guest in this, you know, this nice neighborhood of Kabul, right in downtown Kabul. I think one of the encouraging things from my perspective as someone who grew up, I was in high school, on 9-11, my town lost a dozen people that day. My father worked in lower Manhattan. It was a horrifying day for all Americans, I think, especially so for those of us with a personal connection to it. Just to know that the U.S. government, the U.S. military, U.S. intelligence has a very long memory. And whether it's bin Laden, whether it's Zawahiri, whether it's Zarqawi, whether it's Soleimani, whether it's Baghdadi, if you are responsible for killing Americans, we're not going to just let it go. And whether it takes a few months 
or 21 years, you have to be looking over your shoulder for the rest of your natural life because it might come to an unnatural end because of the United States government. And I'm very pleased to see that this finally happened. What are we learning, Jennifer, about the nature of this strike? I know there are some people out there wondering, are we sure we got him, right? There's no photo of him necessarily because he was, I guess, really shredded to bits by the nature of this particular weapon. How confident are we that it was him? How can we be so sure? I guess if we're wrong, they could come out and embarrass us in a big way with a new video, you know, with him holding a newspaper saying, you know, you lied. Talk about the intelligence behind this sort of thing, the, you know, the level of confidence that goes into making an announcement like this. What do we know about that? Well, let me back up for a moment, Guy, and just go back to you're saying this is a 21-year vendetta, basically, that the U.S. just uh, paid down. But Zawahi was responsible, remember, for the 1998 uh, U.S. embassy bombings in Africa, the USS Cole in 2000. So this was, you know, this he goes way back. and. And 25 years, a vicious, vicious killer who has the blood of many Americans on his hands. He may be a 71-year-old now and look like an aging, you know, an old man uh, that the U.S. just took out. But let's not forget his very, very seriously violent past. In terms of the intelligence, this was pieced together, I'm told, almost solely by the CIA. And and it was done, you know, under very difficult circumstances, given the fact that the U.S. no longer has troops in Afghanistan, no longer has CIA stations in Afghanistan, those bases, you know, evaporated last August. So the fact that they were able to track him through his network uh, and his family had moved to this house that was under Sirajuddin Haqqani, the uh, interior minister, a very wanted man himself with much blood of Americans on his hands. Uh, The fact that they were able to track him and feel so confident uh, that that they watched there was a proof of life there there was a pattern of life that was established. Um, my guess is that uh, again they don't want to d- disclose what kind of intelligence methods they used, but mm-hmm. but my guess is that they had pretty strong. Uh, imagery and um, they were watching that balcony and he, you know, made the mistake that bin Laden did. I mean, he didn't leave the compound. He just came out on the balcony each day. And so they probably had uh, visuals from that, uh, probably have very good pictures of him out on the balcony. Um, And who knows, they may have had a a source on the inside. They may have had uh, tips. It's very hard to keep secrets when a VIP like this moves into a neighborhood so uh, the, they felt very confident uh, in that he was there. They watched him for many months and they presented the the president, we're told, you know, began having uh, meetings about this in the Situation Room back on July 1st and then again on July 25th in which he asked how could the, the CIA be certain that that they would not kill innocent civilians or, and in fact, Zawahi's family, wife and children did survive the attack, we're told, and they were moved from the compound um, afterwards, not by the U.S., but they they disappeared. And so it's difficult in this situation. Normally, the U.S. military would have had a ground team and they would have had DNA evidence. They don't in this case. But based on uh, the reaction from the Taliban and from Kabul, it seems as if, as if they got their man. Yeah. And it sounds like the confidence interval is high. And again, to restate my point, if they got it wrong, it would be a real opportunity for al-Qaeda to embarrass the U.S. government. And they could do that. And if they don't, it seems like that would be another piece of confirmation here 
that this particular terrorist was liquidated. Let's talk about the significance of this happening in Kabul. I'm of two minds of this, Jennifer. On one hand, we heard from the Biden administration that even after the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan, we would still have over-the-horizon capacity to come in and do something like this without boots on the ground, and that has clearly borne out here. That's good news. On the other hand, the fact that you had the senior-ranking al-Qaeda leader feeling brazen enough to now come to Kabul and live there sheltered by with the full knowledge of the Taliban government, and I know the State Department's criticizing the Taliban, saying, oh, this is a violation of our agreement. I mean, what do we expect? They're a terrorist (laughs) organization. But this, again, shows that part of the reason that we went to war in the first place in Afghanistan was because it was a safe haven for dangerous terrorists. And a lot of the critics of the way that we got out of Afghanistan said, this is going to allow a terrorist regime to take over the country, and here we go again. And this at least is some evidence backing that up. What do you think about those two points, which sort of cut against each other a little bit? Well, I think your assessment is accurate. I think what this shows is that the Taliban never broke ties with al-Qaeda. That's what the intelligence community had long told us, and now we see the evidence of that. And the Doha agreement, it was never worth the paper it was written on. It was a a, a quick exit strategy by both the Trump administration and the Biden administration to get out, to cut uh, ties and get out of Afghanistan at all costs. The Taliban were never going to live up to any of those agreements, and, and those who signed it knew that. Uh, the Taliban uh, will will you know this is hugely embarrassing for them, but I don't think that they have much shame. So they they again this is not a surprise to me. I think it's nice that uh, that in effect that Zawahiri's gone. I think it's great that the CIA got this kind of win. But if you think that this kind of over the horizon attack can continue at any sort of level that would make a dent in the kind of uh, foreign fighters that are we're told are streaming into Afghanistan now because the Taliban are providing it a safe, them a safe haven and an ability to to live uh, there unperturbed. I, I think that that is uh, going too far. I think this was incre- you know an incredible amount of work for a long time by the intelligence community had focused on on Zawahi. He made a mistake and they got him. But does this mean they're going to be able to anticipate who the next Zawahi is and how they're regrouping in in Afghanistan? It's going to be very, very difficult to keep an eye on the various uh, Islamic jihadist groups that that are um, that we have a UN a recent re- UN report talking about how thousands of foreign fighters are already moving into Afghanistan. So yep. it's um, they've they've blinded themselves. They got lucky this time, but th- this is not something they're going to be able to carry out on, on a daily basis. Right, it's not sustainable. So it's, it's a good achievement and a big one for the CIA, but not Huge. sustainable as a strategy. Yeah. And I think it's okay to think both of those things at the same time because they're both true, in my view. Sounds like your view as well. Jennifer Griffin, lastly, on Taiwan and China and Speaker Pelosi, she arrived today. She put up social media posts immediately. This is really making a statement. And we know that the Chinese were rattling the saber very loudly about this potential trip. She has defied Beijing. She's also, to some extent, defied the Biden administration based on reporting. They were trying to discourage her from going. Obviously, that did not work. There's been a a number of Republicans now putting out statements, signing letters in support of this visit. What do you make of the threats from China ahead of this? And she's on the ground there now, so we don't know what will play out in the next you know, day or two. But looking ahead even weeks, months, years, 
is this a tempest in a teapot that sort of blows over, or does this have something more lasting in terms of a legacy or consequences? I think this is a turning point in the relationship with Beijing. I think that if you listen to the rhetoric, China is very different from Russia in that they're not going to come uh, and cross you know, they're not going to send their military across a, a border and, and move in immediately. But this has really angered Beijing. At the same time, it has been a very strong symbolic uh, gesture to the Taiwanese government at a time when, again, if you look at what Russia's done in Ukraine, uh, it's important. And as as Speaker Pelosi wrote in a Washington Post op-ed today, you know, it's time for the world to stand up against autocracies and in favor of democracies. And so the administration is trying to walk this fine line of saying we didn't try to uh, discourage Speaker Pelosi from going. But at the same time, they're extremely nervous because we are in uncharted territory. The Pentagon is on edge. They have to watch and see what the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, is going to do. They're already, we've seen reports from the Taiwan Defense Ministry saying that 20 Chinese warplanes have entered Taiwanese airspace. Uh, It's most likely, you know, they're probing. It's a threat. It's they're going to carry out live fire exercises um, over the next few days uh, from Thursday to Sunday. That will be after Pelosi has and her delegation has left. But nonetheless, I don't think anyone knows how this ends. Uh, Beijing is extremely angry, and this is very embarrassing for President Xi. Um, but at the same time, it, there are many, and you, as you mentioned, 26 Republicans signed a letter led by uh, Senator Mitch McConnell in support of the visit. Uh, so this is this is uh, we're in uncharted territory, and that's that's true with Russia. It's true, true with China. These are great powers that are that are you know. Uh, resetting boundaries and lines and uh, how China responds in the long run, my guess is they're going to choose economic means. They're going to squeeze like a python Taiwan. Uh, But their ambassador and their foreign ministry said today that China's long-term policy is still the reunification and reabsorption of of Taiwan into uh, mainland China. So you have to take them at their word. And the U.S. is drawing a line in the sand. Speaker Pelosi has long challenged China. If you go back to 1991, she brazenly unfurled a banner in favor of democracy on Tiananmen Square. She was challenged mm-hmm. by Chinese guards at the time. Uh, this is a, she has a long history of standing up to China. Um, how this plays out, this is a, a, a very tense moment and she's still on the ground there and there are you know two very strong militaries who are kind of uh, you know eyeing each other in the pacific as we speak jennifer griffin national security correspondent at fox news jennifer thank you so much for your time and your insights today thank you guy we will take a break we'll come right back on the guy benson show fresh conservative talk guy benson show Back on the Guy Benson Show, do you remember sweet Nina Jankowitz, woke Mary Poppins, who was placed in charge of the disinformation, misinformation board by the Biden administration before she was tossed out and the thing was disbanded? Then they were talking about reconstituting it. And then I saw a few weeks ago, DHS came out and clarified, no, there's no need for this board after all. It was creepy, Orwellian, authoritarian, frankly, all along. And we talked about the problems that we already have with misidentifying misinformation yesterday, including from sometimes especially from our so-called self-appointed fact checkers. But sweet Nina was going to be a nonpartisan down the middle leader and arbiter 
of truth. And they selected her for a reason. Now, when she was first announced and was under fire, people were saying, oh, they're smearing her. The right wing is attacking her. They're taking her quotes out of context and her social media posts. Now, it was very obvious who this woman was and what she believed. She was very much an ideological gladiator on one side. But she was half-heartedly trying to deny that. Well, over the weekend, she was tweeting about abortion. She tweeted, post Dobbs, as states force women to become mothers, we should have a guarantee of care and support from those same states who are taking away our bodily autonomy. But it's never been about the babies. It's about controlling women and perpetuating race and class divides. Well, I think you should look at some of the breakdowns, the demographic breakdowns on abortion. I don't think it would bear out the point that she thinks I don't think it would bear out the point that she thinks she's making, at least on race. But to smear and attack the entire pro-life movement, saying it's never been about the babies, it's about control and racism and whatever, is just such a fundamental misunderstanding. And I would argue an intentional distortion by this person. And it's fine if you're a left-wing hack and this is what you want to believe and spout off. Go for it. It's a free country. But this is who they picked to run the misinformation board and supposedly do an even-handed job of it. We dodged collectively a real bullet, and every attack against her in that position was justified, including some that we perhaps may have engaged in here on this very show. The Guy Benson Show, that show, continues. Senator Joni Ernst is next. We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free every day. And with us now, U.S. Senator Joni Ertz, Republican of Iowa. Her book is Daughter of the Heartland. And Senator, always good to have you here. Uh, thanks so much, Guy. It's great to be with you. I just want to start with a reaction from you as a senator and a veteran on the killing by the CIA of al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri, in Afghanistan. It couldn't have happened to a nicer person. (laughs) You know, that guy got what he deserved. And so I I am so, so thrilled uh, about the the planning and execution of this mission. Highly successful. We have the most advanced and lethal military and covert operations forces in the world. And they demonstrated that with the killing of Al-Zawiri. And, you know, the, the thing that strikes me, though, is that this was so successful. And again, it, it couldn't have happened to a nicer person. But um, it reminds me that a year ago, President Biden said, al-Qaeda is not in Afghanistan. In so fact, we have we... that. We have that clip. Let's play it real quick. This is cut 13, what Senator Ernst just referenced. Here's the president, August 2021. Look, let's put this thing in perspective here. What interest do we have in Afghanistan at this point with al-Qaeda gone? We went to Afghanistan for the express purpose of getting rid of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, as well as, as well as getting Osama bin Laden. And we did. All right, Senator. I mean, it's great that we got Zawahiri, but uh, he was wrong about al-Qaeda, even at the time, being out of Afghanistan. And it seems like, if anything, al-Qaeda is ramping up its presence in that country. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so here we have one of the most wanted men, the leader of al-Qaeda. He was the successor to Osama bin Laden. And he's lounging in downtown Kabul, you know, drinking his morning coffee, whatever he was doing. But obviously the Taliban, who controls Afghanistan right now, obviously they knew he was there. How could they not know he was there? When we knew he was there, we don't have an active presence in Afghanistan. So it just goes to show that the, the Taliban, they certainly aren't our friends. They don't adhere to the Doha Agreement. You know, they're abusing women and girls. Um, they're allowing al-Qaeda to reconstitute and, you know, hide out in downtown major metropolitan areas. Uh, so there are still issues emanating from Afghanistan. We must remain vigilant. On another matter involving foreign policy, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is in Taiwan. There is a lot of buildup to that, a lot of drama around it, threats being issued, behind-the-scenes maneuvering. Whatever happened, she's there, and you were one of 26 Senate Republicans, a majority of the conference, to sign a letter supporting her. You don't see that very often from Republicans. Some nice words for Pelosi, but on this one, you guys decided to put that out, uh, that out in public. Just your thought process behind that, why you're speaking out on this issue, and do you think that it might have even been more powerful of a signal to send if some Republicans had gone with her? Yeah, I I would have loved that if she would have taken a bipartisan delegation into Taiwan. And for decades, members of Congress, I've been there, um, and including several uh, previous speakers, have actually traveled to Taiwan. I was there just a handful of years ago, and again, it's just a great signal to the people of Taiwan and their leadership that um, America is with you. We have great relations with Taiwan. Um, we're committed now at really more than ever to all elements of the Taiwan Relations Act. And that's why I do think that it was so important that Speaker Pelosi not be bullied by China and that she did go to Taiwan. We can't let the Chinese intimidation really deter our relationship with the Taiwanese. That is extremely important. China should not be able to dictate who we see and where we go. Senator Ernst, a few issues closer to home. I saw a quote from you uh, maybe a week or two ago in Politico. They were going around and asking Republicans about the bill that passed the House on same-sex marriage, where almost 50 House Republicans voted yes along with the Democrats. And there's an open question of whether or not there would be 60 votes in the Senate to pass the legislation. I support it for a number of reasons. I think it's pretty reasonable. I understand that some of the House Republicans say that one small tweak would make it more palatable. The quote from you was that you were keeping an open mind and that you have some very close friends in same-sex marriages. Have you thought more about this question? Would you be a yes or a no if this bill comes up for a vote? Well, Guy, I am going to continue to take Iowans' uh, thoughts into consideration, and I think that's extremely important. Um, I do continue to consult with Senator Chuck Grassley. You know, he is our, our senior senator. And I think however we move forward on this issue, you know, we need to take those Iowans' thoughts into consideration. I just really think that that is important. So I'm speaking to, of course, very, very concerned 
conservative friends, but I'm also speaking to other friends, as I've said before, that I, I do have friends that are in same-sex marriages. And so that input has been important as well. So I am going to keep an open mind. I'm not going to reveal today whether I'll be supporting or not supporting. I do know that language is being worked on in the Senate, which would further refine what was passed by the House. And of course, I'll want to see and read through that language when we arrive at, at the final version of the bill. Um, so, you know, more to follow on this guy and always happy to, to visit more about it later on. Okay, fair. On the PACT Act and veterans and the burn pits and that whole controversy, we had Senator Toomey here on the show yesterday. Where do you come down on this? Because, you know, right now, if you listen to John Stewart and some of the Democrats and a lot of the media, Republicans hate veterans. Well, you're a Republican and you're a veteran. And it seems like there are a few fair points to be made here on both sides of the question. What do you make of the current controversy and where do you think this is going? Well, what I get really upset about is uh, that uh, they will take this issue, and because we uh, saw the screw-up by Schumer, you know, he broke the Constitution. That bill never should have started in the Senate. Uh, it goes against the Constitution, should have started in the House. We were basically bullied into a vote saying, this is your one and only chance. You will not get amendments, um, you know, and so forth. I could go on and on about that. But bottom line, you know, I am a veteran. I do support the bill. And at the end of the day, I think me, all of my colleagues, we're going to support the bill. But what we have to do now that we do have the opportunity to bring up amendments, we have to be able to offer those amendments um, to the members of our conference, because there are some budget gimmicks that are buried within this bill. And And you were promised amendments, right? From Schumer. Schumer promised amendments. He did. And that's the thing that I think a lot of veterans out there don't understand is that when this bill was being negotiated, you know, originally Schumer had had uh, told Jerry Moran and told Senator Tester that there could be amendments offered. But when it came down to it at the last minute, Schumer said, absolutely not. You get one opportunity. We know now that that was a lie. He just didn't want us to fix those issues. Um, so we're going to try and go back in. We're voting on it uh, this evening in the Senate. Um, At the end of the day, this is going to pass, folks. We believe in taking care of those veterans. But I think those veterans, if they knew that there was a lot of waste associated with this that doesn't go to the care of veterans, that they would want that addressed. Because first and foremost, they support the Constitution. Second, um, we want to make sure that they are cared for. But third, they also want to protect American taxpayers. You know, we should support those that have gone into harm's way and have suffered from ill effects. I firmly believe that. But when it's a budget gimmick that the the Democrats are using so they can take an unused pot of money and massage it for other things that are unrelated to veterans' health care, I don't want those veterans to be duped about it either and be blamed 
for the waste, fraud, and abuse that could occur. Um, so let's do the right thing by the veterans. You'll see that by the end of the night. We're going to take care of these wonderful guys and gals that have done so much for our country. We do love them. We want to care for them. But we don't want them used as political pawns, again, to further into the Democrat schemes of spending money in unassociated ways on pet projects not related to veterans' health care. Senator Ernst, finally, on this bill that Senator Manchin and Senator Schumer sort of sprung on you guys. Uh, I think a lot of people were caught off guard, including some Democrats. I see one of them was Kirsten Sinema. She was huddling briefly with Manchin earlier today. They want to raise taxes. I know Manchin is saying there are no tax increases, but that's wrong. They also are saying this is a reducing inflation bill. That's what they're calling it, at least, but it spends a lot more money in this moment. About 30 seconds, Senator, your thoughts on this bill, and are you surprised at all by Manchin? I am surprised that he has been tricked into doing this. It was a ludicrous thing to do. I think he he regrets that decision to work with Chuck Schumer. I think he's going to get thrown under the bus with whatever promises were made to him. It did catch a lot of people off guard. They're really upset about it, including our own conference. And Iowans are facing inflation and a, a looming recession here. They're feeling the heat. They're feeling the pain. They don't need their taxes raised right now. And, they yeah, and don't that's the position I know of many Republican senators. Joni Ernst of Iowa, we've got to leave it there for now. Always appreciate your time on The Guy Benson Show. Home stretch. Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free. I'll be on Fox Business Network coming up in the next hour, the evening edit. Hope to see you there. Well, because of our interview with Senator Ernst, we have a limited home stretch today, just like we had a limited one yesterday. So we had Pat Toomey here, another senator. We have another prominent senator tomorrow in this part of the five o'clock hour. It's almost as if producer Christine, who insists this is the only time they can do it, it's the only time they can do these interviews. It's almost as if producer Christine does not want to have an extended grilling about her vacation about her tattoo decision, and certainly about her decision to snub multiple days this program. With Quiet White just trying to fill in and fill her shoes for a couple of days, wanted producer Christine to give us a vacation update. Quick phoner. That's all we asked. In fact, she asked that of him when he was at Disney recently, and he obliged. But producer Christine just, you know, couldn't be bothered. She got her special Backstreet Boys birthday gift. She got to meet the Backstreet Boys, best friends ever, best birthday ever, and then just uh, MIA for a week, even for the smallest little favor. And, you know, I don't really take it that personally, but I think Wyatt takes it very personally. So, Christine, I know that you are back on the job here and apparently scheduling long interviews leading into the home stretch so you don't have to talk about this and justify yourself. For more than, you know, a few seconds here, this is the Fox business story we were talking about yesterday, how much you should interact with work when you're on vacation. And obviously you are making your position here crystal clear. And I want to know how much of this decision supposedly being out on a boat every day, you couldn't possibly make a phone call for three or four minutes. How much of that is a personal attack against 
Wyatt, on your part? Oh my gosh, why? There, there's no attack against YY just because I forced him to call into the show when he was just waiting on a line to get to the Pirates of the Caribbean is not my fault that he caved and did it. I was on a boat. There was, what, what did you want me to do? Tell my brother-in-law, pull the boat over? So, you know, get into this bay or dock the boat so I could call in? I don't think that they would have taken too kindly to that. Now, if I was on land, I definitely would have called in and given mm. some updates. So hang on. You were on this boat, is what I'm hearing, from... All day. 1 p.m. until 6 p.m. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Mm. Yeah, that was that's exactly it. We were on the boat mm-hmm. all day. It was, you know, like a morning to night uh, boat days because the weather wasn't so great up there. So the days that we had beautiful weather, it just happened to be the days Wyatt had asked me to join the show. I can't, you know, I'm not a magician. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I didn't. And are you, are you yes. saying that you had no cell service at all out on the boat on this lake in New Hampshire? Ah. Just there's like a little dead zone right around that lake. <laughs> I just didn't know exactly where we would be, what we would be doing. Was I just going to mm. be searching for Chris Sununu the whole time? I didn't know. So I didn't want to, you know, make a promise that I couldn't keep. I think you guys were totally fine without me. Um, I do think it's actually good to take a break from work. You know, like take the full week. Because to be par- perfectly honest, like the last day of vacation everybody was grumbling and you know oh god i gotta get back to work oh it's our last day and i hand to god i swear i was so excited i'm like guys i'm actually excited to go back to work i love my job i work with my best friends i mean i don't have that oh it's it's just just not excited enough to even answer a phone call for three or four minutes what would you do if i told you that each and every time you snubbed wide and said no when he was practically begging, very politely begging for you to come on. What would you do if I told you that he was reduced to tears, just crying, (laughs) sobbing every time you said no? Does that make you feel any worse? Because many people are saying that's what happened. I wouldn't believe you for a second. Uh, I think I just wouldn't believe it. I think maybe maybe you haven't met Weeping Wyatt yet. But you you made that. You made a new nickname for Wyatt based on your cruel and unusual refusals, making his job so much more stressful because you know me. I was demanding. I was like, get this. You always say, oh, it's so hard to get people when they're on vacation. And here we are, just like producer Christine pulling a car rove here. And it's just it's gone in your file. It's in the binder. I saw Wyatt was making multiple annotations in your file throughout the week. And I'm just saying be aware. All right. Last word quickly, Christine. Um, I can turn this around on you. How come you were in New York the whole time that I was gone? Seems a little fishy to me. The one well, it wasn't fishy gone. at all. You know, I scheduled it so that I could go there and avoid you. Right? <laughs> I'm very open about this. I'm not trying to, like, sneak around and camouflage my motives. I was like, oh, Christine's gone that week. I need to be in New York for almost an entire week. Let's just make those two things overlap so I can have a pleasant, stress-free experience without producer Christine – And it worked out great for me, but not so great for Wyatt, who was really broken up over the whole thing. Well, I I apologize to Wyatt. I will make it up to him by going to the next party he's throwing. So looking forward to that. Well, watch out, Wyatt, because she'll say, yes, she's coming, then she just won't show up. And good luck getting an invite to anything that she ever does. That's just that's not a thing that really happens with Cookie. Wyatt is actually he is 
sobbing again. We have triggered him. I'm looking through the glass, and he is inconsolable right now. And the show's over. I have to go in there and, like, give him a hug, if that's allowed from HR. Because look what you've done again, Christine. I hope you're happy. I hope you're satisfied. Uh, I'm glad you had a good vacation. It's good to have you back. And there's still much more Guy Benson show to come this week, including Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell on the show right here in studio tomorrow. You do not want to miss that. We will talk to you then. Have a great night. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.